Hello, my friends. This is Clinton Nunnally, and it can be better than that. This is the unapologetically optimistic podcast where we discover the vast potential in each of us to just be more honest with ourselves, to learn to see others more clearly, to choose radical responsibility in everything, and to boldly create the life and relationships we are wanting. Welcome to It Can Be Better Than That. Episode 2, Responsibility, Empowerment, and Participation. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of It Can Be Better Than That. Today's episode, Responsibility, Empowerment, and Participation. That's what we're tackling today. No biggie. Just that. Nothing to see here. I was noticing something as I was prepping for this episode. I went back to the podcast description. You know, the thing you hear me say in the music intro. The thing about the vast potential in each of us to be more honest with ourselves. To see others more clearly. To choose radical responsibility in everything. And to boldly create the life and relationships we're wanting. That part. And I realized that the whole summary was really just a statement about empowerment and what happens when we take responsibility and ownership for ourselves and for all of our internal feelings and experiences and fully participate in all aspects of our lives. I guess it's really what this whole thing is all about in one way or another. At some level, this is the essence of this podcast. Not just this episode, but I mean the entire project. Of course, there's more to it than first appears, this responsibility thing. And the outcomes and applications are infinite, I suppose. And honestly, it's all just really powerful. It's a powerful way of living. Responsibility, at first glance, sounds like a simple, straightforward concept. Take responsibility. Be a responsible person. Deal with your stuff. Do what you're supposed to do. Take care of the things that are yours to take care of. Get stuff done. Make things happen. Stop being lazy. But this is not what I mean by responsibility. Or people use it like this. I have so much to take care of this week. So many things are happening. I can't let anything go. People are counting on me. I can't let them down. There are just so many things I'm responsible for, I can hardly breathe. But this also is not actually at all what I'm talking about when I talk about responsibility. When I talk about responsibility, I'm not talking about a heavy burden. And I'm not talking about others' expectations of you or your expectations of yourself. When I talk about responsibility, I'm talking about 100% self-responsibility, pure empowerment, ownership, participation. Self-responsibility is not self-blame. 
It's not self-judgment. It's not self-shaming. And it's not guilt. These are just sly thieves that steal away our power to shift ourselves in a way that transforms us and the people around us. Responsibility is profoundly practical, and it will change everything. I want to paint a picture for you. You see, we are always co-creating our reality, our relationships, our life situations, and our experiences in living. Why do I say co-creating? Because life is throwing things at us, and we have to be ready to catch those things that are being thrown at us and do something with them. And people are interacting with us, reacting to us, hoping for and waiting for and wishing for things from us, expecting things from us. And we have to decide how we're going to respond. The things that come at us are one part of the co-creation of our reality. How we respond is the other part. So you can see why I say that we're always co-creating our reality. And, wait for it, most often we're doing it unconsciously. And when we do things unconsciously, there are hidden forces at work. And these hidden forces are powerful. Reactive, unthoughtful, unhelpful, ungrounded, lacking a deeper wisdom, and ultimately people get hurt. You get hurt, I get hurt. But what would happen if we chose to consciously co-create our reality? Can you imagine? If all of those hidden and powerful and unbridled forces were conscious, can you imagine what would be possible? The traps we could avoid, the partnership we could enjoy, the experiences we could shape. What if we could harness the ability to respond to all the things that life was throwing at us? Imagine what it might be like seeing each thing that happens to us as a sort of mysterious phenomenon that we could do something with. What if life was our ally? Something to be in partnership with. Something to participate in. What if we could see in slow motion the things that other people were winging at us, expecting of us, wanting, wishing, and hoping for from us? And what if we took full ownership of everything that was being generated within us? Our thoughts, emotions, feelings, and somatic experiences. What if we could be aware of them, really see them as belonging to us, understand them for what they really are, know what they are really about, and be able to hear what they are trying to tell us. Wouldn't that be powerful? Empowering? Wouldn't it be something to have the ability to show up big, to really come to life with openness, curiosity, creativity, compassion, clarity, confidence, a certain kind of calm, an alertness, an aliveness, and the ability to lead from your true self. Can you imagine?
You see, responsibility is the ability to respond to what people, situations, and life are throwing at us. At its heart, responsibility is empowerment. It's taking ownership of everything that is happening inside of us. It's knowing that we can do something with all that's happening outside of us. And the essential requirement is participation. Participating in all that is emerging in our environment. Participating in all that is emerging in us. Participation over avoidance. Participation rather than blame. Participation instead of collapse. Participation, not endless accommodation. Participation, not control. When we are doing life and relationships and refuse to see how we are co-creating all that is emerging, we end up falling prey to victim, blame, and manager mentalities. Without a participation model for living, then everything seems like it's just happening and things feel chaotic. And when things feel chaotic, we reach for control. When we reach for control, we forgo true empowerment. We forget our own empowerment and we miss the empowerment that's available to others. So we either deny that what is happening has anything to do with us, or we believe that what is happening has everything to do with us and is because of us. Or we take on other people's stuff as though their stuff belongs to us so that we can fix it and make it all better. When we aren't operating out of responsibility, ownership, empowerment, and participation, we get confused about what belongs to whom, and things get overwhelming, and we feel under-resourced. And when we are under-resourced, we tend to see things through the lens of scarcity, where nobody has enough of anything, especially us. But when we are participating with 100% responsibility and ownership, we are empowered to act and operate and live out of openness, curiosity, creativity, spaciousness, abundance, compassion, clarity, grounded confidence, and a deeper wisdom. And everybody ends up having enough. Now, as great as all of this sounds, it is in no way commonplace. In fact, I'd say it's somewhat rare. But why? What is that about? Why do we avoid responsibility, empowerment, and participation? Why do we retreat? And what are we afraid of? I think it has to do with drives so basic to us that we forget their power. We forget the force they deliver in our daily lives. I'm talking about safety, security, predictability. Not just a few surviving survival instincts, but the very foundation of attachment. The basic elements we must have to actually survive as infants. And later, 
the ongoing dynamics we need to psychologically, emotionally, and relationally thrive. Safety, security, and predictability pave the road that leads to knowing and belonging. And what seems obvious to me is that knowing others, knowing ourselves, being known, and belonging are desires in us as strong as they have ever been in our 60,000-ish year-long history. And we want to be able to count on them. But how does our desperate and understandable desire to know, be known, and to belong get in the way of responsibility, empowerment, and participation? Let's look first at knowing others. Remember from episode one, we need to know who others are. Will they help us or hurt us, friend or foe? So, we quickly assess who people are and what we can expect from them. We need and want them to be predictable, to stay the same, at least in our minds and in our experience. That way we can know them and trust them. But if they miss a beat, if they do something out of the ordinary or different than what we want, need, or expect, it throws us off and we get kerbobbled, scared even, and we start to flail and we don't like it and we react to it and we do whatever we can to stabilize the situation. So, there's knowing others and then there's knowing ourselves. And this one is so big. Knowing ourselves has everything to do with our attachment to people, places, things, and ideas. And it is our attachment to all of this that makes it all complicated. Necessary, but complicated. Knowing ourselves. How do we first know ourselves except by seeing ourselves as we are first reflected by others? How do we first know ourselves except by how we're able to interact with and manipulate the people and things around us in our environments? I don't mean manipulate here in a negative sense as it's usually used. I mean it in its truest, most basic sense. To move things around and turn them and see how they fit together and how they fit with us. So I say it again. How do we first know ourselves except by how we're able to interact with and manipulate the people and things around us in our environments? And how do we first know ourselves except by what we do, think, feel, and produce? So as we're first developing, but later on too, and really all throughout our lives, we attach to all of these elements in our environment, people, places, and things. And we attach to our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and the things we are enacting and creating in the world, and we imagine that these phenomena are indeed us. I am my thoughts. I am my feelings, my behaviors, my intentions and creations. And we imagine that all of these things are stable and predictable. And the idea of losing them feels terrifying. If we lose them, do we even exist? So we hold on at all costs to a knowing. 
I know who I am and I know what makes me me. And part of what makes me me is you and what I know of you and what makes you you. And part of what makes me me is my world and what I know of my world and what makes my world what it is. And I will hold on for dear life to all of these knowings. Now, we also want to be known. And we want the way we are known to be congruent with how we see ourselves. Enter the ego. The ego is that which we wish to project into the world and protect at all costs. And it feels awful when we are seen in ways contrary to how we wish to be seen or in ways different than we imagine ourselves to be, or in ways that are in opposition to that which we wish to be. These are actually some of the most unsettling and downright painful experiences any of us can have. If I'm not known in ways I want to be known, who am I? And if I'm not known in ways I expect to be known, do I even exist as I think I do? So, we will do anything to protect ourselves, including denying anything that runs counter to our own ways of knowing ourselves. We will fight to be known in the way we want to be known. But above all, we want to belong. We must belong. Without belonging, we're alone. And alone is exposed. And being exposed is dangerous. Belonging is our safety. And how we know others, how we know ourselves, and how we are known determines our sense of belonging. And we hang our sense of belonging on our experiences of safety, security, and predictability. And this is where things get complex and precarious. How we know others how we know ourselves, and how we are known are always shifting. Because we're shifting. We are acting, interacting, reacting, changing, hopefully growing, but mostly trying to navigate life and all that comes with living. So we're always navigating how we know others, how we know ourselves, and how we are known and feel known. And none of it is even close to being as predictable as we would like it to be. Belonging, as it turns out, is tricky. So many experiences threaten our sense of belonging. When we behave in ways we don't intend, or in ways that we're not conscious of, we risk being misunderstood and pushed away. When others behave in ways that feel inconsistent, unexpected, or in opposition to our expectations and desires, we create distance or we do the pushing. Feelings of anger, hurt, uncertainty, and shame erode our sense of closeness and connection. And when we own our own thoughts, feelings, and experiences, we do, in some ways, stand alone. And ultimately, we fear Disconnection, isolation, and loneliness, feeling alone and not known. So, we find ways to secure our belonging. Sometimes we blame, we scapegoat, because blame connects us to others and protects us from being the one set apart or named or sent away. 
Other times we take other people's stuff on because taking ownership for others keeps us tied to them. And then by being needed, we can secure our belonging and our being known. And still other times we become the helpless one that needs rescuing. And by doing so, we open up space for someone to become the rescuer and attach to us through our helplessness. Again, securing our belonging. Look, it doesn't really matter what role we choose. Each one belongs. Each one is needed. Choose one and you secure your spot. So, these are our survival needs. Knowing others, knowing ourselves, being known and belonging. Now, What does all of this have to do with responsibility, empowerment, and participation? You can see how easy it is to feel lost in all the moving parts, can't you? In all the desperate attempts to know, be known, and belong. And responsibility, empowerment, and participation all require a type of finding. A finding of some firm ground, a finding of what's true, a finding of what you trust, a finding of your essential self. And when you are lost, it is hard to find yourself. You can imagine how easy it is to cling to something unchanging in the midst of all the changing. So, we do our dance perform our predictable patterns. We make it simple and concrete. Like in episode one, we create stories. And we will make sure that we are getting the story right about ourselves, about others, about what's happening between us and others. Who said what? Who did what? What exactly happened and in what order? And we cement these stories in certainty. Because one surefire way to ensure our sense of security is to find a very simple certitude that makes us feel safe. We are desperate for something to hold on to. Now, we can use these survival moves or we can hold on to ourselves. But holding on to ourselves can feel vulnerable and scary. Kind of like it's all up to us. And when we're vulnerable and scared, we tend to choose the survival moves native to this pressured, constricted space. So, let's talk about this constricted, pressured space we get into. It's a space that's full of predictable moves, assertions, assumptions, proclamations, blame, collapse, accommodation, all kinds of methods for making ourselves feel like we know others and ourselves. Lots of maneuvering so that we are known in the ways we want to be known. Multiple means by which we boost our sense of belonging. Now, the way I've always talked about this is by using Cartman's Drama Triangle, further developed by Gay and Katie Hendricks of the Hendricks Institute and helpfully explained by the folks at the Conscious Leadership Group. Picture a simple triangle. On each vertex, place one of the following roles. 
the victim, the villain, and the hero. Each role occupies its own vertex. Each of these roles has their own internal and external behaviors and dynamics. And all of these roles are in relationship with each other, creating a cycle of reactivity. So, instead of harnessing the ability to respond to what's going on, we follow our impulse to react. I'll get into each of these roles and the interplay of dynamics between the roles, but first, I want to talk about the experiences that send us onto the triangle and the qualities that exist in the interior of the triangle. There are many common activating events and experiences that make it difficult to live out of responsibility, empowerment, and participation. And when we lose our way, we move onto the drama triangle. The emotions, feelings, and experiences that tend to catapult us onto the triangle are anxiety, fear, anger, hurt, sadness, and overwhelm. Feelings of being out of control. On the inside of the triangle exist some very strong forces and dynamics. Chaos, drama, conflict, reactivity, anger, fear, blame, certainty, the need to be right, urgency, a no energy, rigidity, disconnect, forcing, power plays, scarcity, and engulfment, the feeling of being overcome by a dynamic greater than us that's taken hold of us and hijacked the entire moment. A really tough space to be in. And we all do it, usually in some ways big or small every day. None of us are exempt. Now, let's get to know each role, position, or if you will, character. The victim. When we're in the victim position, we feel as though we are at the effect of fill in the blank. We are at the effect of our jobs. We're at the effect of our busy lives. We're at the effect of our partners. We're at the effect of our children. The victim operates out of a place of collapse, powerlessness. From this vantage point, we believe that things are happening to us and that there is nothing we can do about it. We pull on outside forces and resources to rescue us. We locate the problem externally. We cannot see our own co-creation of the problem, the circumstance, or the situation. The villain. When we're in the villain position, we also locate the problem externally and cannot see our own co-creation of the dynamic. But from this position in the unfolding drama, we use what the Gottmans call the relationship killers, blame, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. We use these to deflect away from ourselves. Victims say, in essence, if you all didn't do what you were doing, I wouldn't do the things that I'm doing, and things would be fine, and I would be fine. Kind of a 
you made me do it stance. You are the problem. Those of us who move more easily to the villain position tend to have a really strong inner critic that we project out into the world. Victims and villains are readily recognizable. We don't like being around them. And many people don't really like becoming them. So, we often try to hide our victim and villain tendencies and enact them in subtler ways. But they are there. And they kind of engulf us at our most vulnerable moments. And when we are in these mindsets, our perspective feels really true. Like the truest thing there is. Now for the hero. This is the tricky one, folks, because the world loves heroes and they look so good on the outside and they do a lot of good things. The problem is the interior motive, the energy underneath it all. For heroes, it's all about temporary relief from internal and external conflict. Please hear, temporary. Your struggle or pain feels uncomfortable to me. How can I relieve it? That conflict out there scares me. How can I solve it? So, when we're enacting the hero, we tend to be problem solvers, fixers, managers, distractors, enablers, accommodators, and absorbers. We rescue victims and absorb from villains. We overly internalize the things that are going on in our environments. We can see that the things that are going on exist out there, but we quickly shift things around and locate the problem within ourselves so that we can be in control of it all, take matters into our own hands, and temporarily solve the problem so that we can feel relief so that we can feel better, a way of managing anxiety. But when we're the hero, we don't look like controllers. Villains are the ones that look like the control freaks, but the hero position is just as much about control. It's just a different way of controlling. We know how to choreograph our dance so that it doesn't look like control. It looks like helping but there's a huge personal cost to us when we're the hero. We overly accommodate until we are spread too thin to do anyone any good. We burn out and then sometimes collapse into the victim or we get angry and become the villain. All three of these roles have a number of things in common. All of them are trying to find a way to be in control. They're all trying to alleviate anxiety and fear. They're all trying to make sense of what's going on in the simplest, most manageable way possible. And none of them are really fully operating out of their whole selves. They're operating out of parts of themselves. And parts are inherently less empowered than wholes. Parts are powerful, yes. But empowered? No. All three of these positions ask, what am I against versus what am I for? What can I have power over versus 
How can I harness the power to dot, dot, dot. All three of these roles end up being fatiguing. And the reality is we all play all three roles. Heroes have internalized victims and villains hidden away because they are ugly. Victims have internalized villains and at some level know that they can hero themselves but are too angry to do it. And villains have internalized victims and often feel like life is stingy and punishing and that the world owes them something. Getting the label right is not the point. The point is to recognize that we're all susceptible to these, to understand what leads to us playing these roles and to feel empowered to get out of them. The point is to use this to understand ourselves and not to become another blame tactic for us to use against others. Stop being a villain. You're such a victim. Stop acting like you're powerless. Oops, there you go being a hero again. And it's not helpful to turn this into self-criticism or self-blame either. Let's turn instead towards compassion for ourselves and others. When our sense of responsibility is out of balance, when we're struggling to feel empowered, When we end up creating chaos instead of responding and actively participating, we must realize that there are powerful forces at play. Get ready because this is a long list. Fear versus love. Reactivity versus responsiveness. Chaos versus calm. Constriction versus expansion. Parts versus holes. A no energy versus a yes energy. The small story versus the big story. Rigidity versus flexibility. Certainty versus curiosity. Forcing versus allowing. Power over versus power to. Scarcity versus abundance. Enemies versus allies. A fierce holding on to versus a letting go of and all kinds of over-identification and over-attachment. So much of this drama triangle stuff is operating at a deeply unconscious level. This is what makes these roles and positions and moves so habitual, reactive, and automatic. These powerful forces I'm talking about, these ways of managing all the ambiguity and uncertainty, these stories... They may create a sense of safety, security, and predictability by knowing, being known, and belonging, but that doesn't make them true. Not at the inarguable level of truth. These stories, what we believe about ourselves, others, and the space in between, often exist in the realm of the arguable, meaning we don't know if they're actually true. We want them to be true. They feel really true. But these truths that we so desperately cling to, they reside in the interior worlds of others. And we don't really have access to them. They're shaped by our attempts to organize external forces that don't belong to us. And they are honed out of a partial knowledge of all the internal dynamics that do belong to us. So we cannot actually know if they're true or not. 
and they end up causing a certain amount of pain. If you want to move towards responsibility, empowerment, and participation, you will have to get to the inarguable truth. Inarguable truth is simple, truly basic, basement-level stuff here, like I feel disconnected, afraid, alone, worried, sad, hurt, lonely, confused, misunderstood, not seen, known, or heard, overwhelmed, out of control. Yes, these inarguable truths are usually unconscious at first. We don't know that we're afraid. We just know that we don't like it. We don't like what's going on, so our impulse is to react. We forget how to helpfully respond. We forget that we're empowered. We don't know how to participate in what's happening around us, to us, and in us. We get stuck in the small story. So much is happening at the unconscious level, and it's our job to make all of it conscious. Responsibility, empowerment, and participation can feel vulnerable at first. Because it positions things in such a way that we must first look inward. We have to hold on to ourselves. We have to show up big. It feels easier and safer to dump the emotional load onto somebody else. But responsibility, empowerment, and participation requires us to look at others differently, with curiosity and compassion. It requires us to imagine the other person's world and what might be going on for them. It requires us to look at ourselves differently with curiosity and compassion from more of an observer's perspective. It requires us to back up and see what's going on in our own internal world. What's happening in me? What does this remind me of? How do I know this reaction in myself? How is this part of a pattern in my life? How might I be operating out of fear and self-protection? How is the situation bringing up my own insecurities and vulnerabilities? And how might I be refusing to deal with my insecurities and fall into my own vulnerability? How am I refusing love? How am I refusing to extend beyond myself and step outside of my comfort zone in order to make what I would like to be happening happen? What if I just pled guilty to my part? What if I asked, what am I wanting more of right now? And what if I invited the very thing that I was wanting? You see, Operating out of responsibility, empowerment, and participation requires slowing things down, pulling back and seeing the larger story, decreasing urgency, increasing spaciousness, pausing, thinking, wondering, stepping away from the stories in our own head. It requires us to self-question and be self-skeptical, 
and to be suspicious that what things look like on the surface may not be the whole story. It requires us to look to see what else is going on under the surface. Frankly, it all just takes time. When we are choosing responsibility, empowerment, and participation, we just can't look at situations as problems to be solved quickly. We have to learn to take the long-range view. We need to see the big, wide, expansive arc. We must realize that things are not as urgent as they seem and that we create 90% of the urgency in our lives. And all of this requires a trust that things do filter out over time when we learn to operate out of our essential selves. In other words, responsibility, empowerment, and participation requires a tremendous amount of trust. Trust in ourselves, others, and life. From episode one, You have to buy into the big story. You have to believe that something bigger is going on. You have to believe in the reality and power of transformation. But if we are going to shift out of this constricted space, what are we shifting to? If we're wanting to get out of the triangle, where are we wanting to get to? Where are we wanting to go? We don't want to move into any other constricted or pressured space. And all shapes, by their very nature, are enclosed and constricted. So don't picture a shape. Go bigger. Much, much bigger. We want to move into a place that is infinitely spacious. A place of expansion. We want to get out there. The space out there is a space of openness, curiosity, creativity, compassion, kindness, clarity, confidence, wisdom, love, expansiveness, aliveness, presence. A space where you can be calm and alert, where you can hold onto inarguable truths, where people, situations, and circumstances are not our enemies, but our allies. When you can get out there, you can also be in here, in your own body, your own heart space, your own grounded core. You can be in yourself and operate out of yourself. The drama triangle is seductive and alluring. How do we make this shift? We have to become aware. We have to wake up. We can't keep sleepwalking through life. And once we become conscious, it requires a constant return to curiosity and participation. What's really going on here? What am I wanting? And how can I participate in what's going on out there and in here? The point is not to get to the place where you're always acting out of responsibility, empowerment, and participation 100% of the time. That's unreasonable and inhuman. The idea is to know your patterns so personally and clearly that you can recognize what is happening as close to the moment as possible and learn to shift yourself into responsibility and empowerment and full participation. 
Do you know someone who does this well? What's happening in those who are able to take full responsibility for themselves and their lives? What has allowed them to do this? What are the things that are in place and in order inside of them that allows them to live out of empowerment and full participation? There's this Jewish word, shalom, which we translate to mean peace. In the Jewish tradition, though, it's not just a word. It's a big idea. It's the idea that all is as it should be. All is right and everything is in its place. What a beautiful and helpful image. People who choose responsibility, empowerment, and participation have an internal sense of shalom, peace. It doesn't mean that everything is going just right for them. It's just that they know that everything is all right within them. At an essential level, they are in a close and trusting relationship with themselves. In the language of internal family systems, they understand that they have an essential self that is untouched, unwounded, and essentially has everything they need to heal and be a healing force in the world. And it's not because everything is perfect inside of them. They just know that there is an essential rightness inside of them and that it is here because there is something for it to do in the world. There's something for them to do in the world. The world needs something that they have. In other words, there's a profound yes in them and their essential yes does not need to look like anyone else's essential yes. This all requires a lot of awareness, self-reflection, and in many cases, intentional therapeutic work. But when we know this part of us, this essential self, we have so much freedom to look at ourselves more honestly, to see others more clearly, to take full responsibility and create the life and relationships that we're wanting. We can plead guilty to our not-so-shiny parts and celebrate our most brilliant parts. And pleading guilty to our self-protective and defensive parts does not become the whole of how we see ourselves. And in celebrating our most brilliant parts, we are able to remain humble because we did not put those things inside of us to begin with. They are just in us, however that came to be. And we get to participate in those brilliant parts of ourselves and give them to the world. False humility or denying our brilliant parts does not do anyone any good because then they remain hidden in the shadows and dark places. And how can you use something that's tucked away in a dark closet? All I'm doing here is painting a vivid picture. I can't walk you through all of the work involved in becoming conscious and self-led enough to choose responsibility, empowerment, and participation. That's where therapy, counseling, coaching, and spiritual direction come into play. But vivid images are powerful. The drama triangle is burned in my brain just because of how often I've taught it and used it over the years. 
now I have something inside of me that immediately comes into my visual brain when I'm feeling untethered, afraid, disappointed, hurt, or overwhelmed. And I can imagine moving into that immense open space out there. And I do all that I can to choose responsibility, empowerment, and participation so that I can shift into that space. I always practice what I teach. I can't seem to let myself get away with anything else. But make sure you're taking care of yourself and resourcing yourself. Reach out for therapy, counseling, coaching, or spiritual direction. If you're struggling with these dynamics and having a hard time getting empowered in your life and relationships, know that you are not a victim. Even if you've been a victim in the past, you don't have to be a victim now. And you can do so much better than blaming. Believe me. And it is not your job to take on everybody else's stuff. If you take full ownership of your own stuff, you will be much more powerful in other people's lives, I promise. The path of empowerment is paved for you. It's there, waiting to be traveled upon. Do whatever it takes to get yourself into a place where you can harness the ability to respond to all that life and relationship throws your way so that you can participate fully in the life and relationships that have been given to you. Until next time. When I'm not podcasting, I'm a licensed professional counselor, owner of two group counseling practices, husband and father of two boys. And truthfully, I think the world of it all. It Can Be Better Than That is written, produced, and edited by me, Clinton Nunnally. Music written by Afterlife Parade. Song title, So Alive. New episodes drop monthly. If you'd like to know when a new episode is released, make sure to turn on notifications for It Can Be Better Than That. See you next time.